You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning, Real Life. How are you? Woo! We're woo! Glad you're here. Ten years we've been here, almost. A couple more weeks, it'll be a ten-year anniversary. I'm excited about that, and we have some big things up for that um, service. I, I want to ask you guys to do me a favor. Any of you that can. So I'm not putting pressure on you, but I'm kind of putting pressure on you. Um, specifically in this service, look around. Now add 200 more people to the service. Okay? Here's what I need you to do. Help a brother out. Go to Thursday night service that weekend. Like for what it's worth, I would go to Thursday night. Like, if I wasn't paid to be here all weekend, Thursday night would be my service. First of all, it's fun. People aren't all tired, all morning tired. They aren't all been out all Saturday night tired. Like, it's fun. Plus, you get to go, like, do Thursday night service, and then you knocked out church. You get your whole weekend. My mom, my own mother, this morning was out picking beans because she came to Thursday night church. She's like, am I even allowed to do that? Yeah. Yeah, you are. You've been to church. So for that weekend especially, I would really encourage you, please help us out. It will help us out a ton if you'll just go to the Thursday night service for that weekend. But I would say check it out and maybe, maybe make Thursday service your home because it's fun. Um, we have a long way to go before the sun sets. So you guys ready to go to work? Another one of those passages with all this stuff hanging from it. And we can take some time to dissect all that and pull it apart. And we'll do that a little bit. But I feel like this passage really opens up for us a conversation that's pretty central to who I am and pretty central to the church that we hope we planted uh, that we always wanted to become. And so we're going to step back. I'm going to get a little amped today, so I hope that's okay. I can't talk, like, when you're striding with the message that God's put in your heart, you can't help but let it it's, it come, like, you get ramped. So um, I'm going to need some help from you guys this morning. You guys ready for this? All right, so we're going to break this down. We're in Revelation chapter 14. I want to read the first five verses, and then we will um, pull that apart, and then we'll kind of work our way through most of the chapter today. So let's begin. And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, if you'll remember the vision that John has been having, it's been about beasts and pain, and persecution, and bad stuff, bad stuff, bad stuff. And all of a sudden, John goes, but then the vision changed. How did it change? He saw the lamb. Now, I just want to point this out. Uh, that changes in your life, too. You want things to turn around in your life, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. I, I have varying degrees of love with the old hymns. Like some of them I'm like, I really like. Some of them I'm like, I don't understand that word at all. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if you guys remember the old hymn, Sweet Beulah Land. 
Like, what even is that? I don't even... Sweet Beulah Land in Beulah Land. I don't know what Beulah Land is. <laughs> On Christ the solid rock I stand. Uh, well, I agree with that. But I don't... I lo- you lost me at Beulah. Um, so... I have varying degrees of love with the old hymns, but one of the old hymns that I love is uh, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Like, I love that line. That's true. It changes the vision for John, and it'll change the vision for you. So let's, let's look at this and see what happens. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, who even is that? We'll talk about it. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. That is a cultural play that we won't talk about. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song. Before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Okay, why do I need to know that? That's kind of private information. We'll talk about it. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. You need to circle that if you're taking notes. First fruits. For God and the Lamb, in, in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. Okay, so let's talk about this for a little bit. First of all, I want to pull out this 144,000 and just look at it from a big picture. What, who are they? What are they? And, and there's a lot of options for this one. I don't know that most of them are better than another. Some of them are not as good of options. If uh, you've been home on a Saturday morning at some point in your house, you've probably had your door knocked on by someone who would tell you that that 144,000 are the only people who actually get to get into heaven. And the rest of us will live on paradise earth. Have you heard this? Yeah. That's wrong. That's the only one that I'll say, that's wrong. That's ridiculous. That's, that is not accurate on any level. I had a guy, when my wife and I were on our honeymoon, he knocked on our door. Hey, would you like to live on earth forever? Now, I was a young, zealot Bible college student, righteous in my indignation, <laughs> and I was on my honeymoon. Uh, so I was not nice to him. Um, I'm repenting in front of you all right now. 24 years later, I'm repenting. So uh, that's one option. It's not a good option. It's probably the worst of all the options, but it's an option. Another option for the 144,000 is this is Israel. This is the, the Israel followers of God up to the point of the writing of Revelation. And, and could it be? It could be. It makes sense because 144 is 12 times 12. Anytime you see the number 12, it's probably associated with Israel and the 12 tribes. I mean, you can see the connection there. Could it be that? Yeah, it could be. It could be 12 times 12 times 1,000, which would make sense if it's Israel as a people. That makes sense. Uh, another option is it could be martyrs, like the the martyrs that have been martyred for the slain lamb and those that have already gone before us as martyrs. Could it be that? Could be that. Could be 
all people who are all connected to all the, all the God followers all along the way, all those who followed the slain lamb all along the way. Could it be that? Yeah. Yeah. So which is it? I'm going to let you pick. You pick anyone you want. You are free to choose. See, God always gives freedom. You are, you are free to choose on the 144,000. A couple of things that I want to point out about them. First of all, they're virgins. Why do we need to know that? Because that's personal. Well, here's why. Because what we need to understand about this 144,000 soldiers that are going to follow the slain lamb into battle is that their battle is a righteous one. This is a holy war. And holy war, in holy war, the soldiers of a holy war always dedicate themselves to purity in all senses. So they don't they don't deal, they don't have sex, they don't, have, they don't drink any alcohol, there's nothing about that. And so they, they keep themselves extra pure as a dedication to the holiness of their cause. That's why we need to know that they're virgins. That's just a statement being made that they're, they're about to enter holy war. And they see it as holy war. Okay? Now, the other thing that I want to talk about is that they're the first fruits. And this is really, really important because for us, this chapter is going to have all kinds of farming harvest language in it. And I really want us to capture what's going on in this harvest. So the first fruits, if you think about um, a wheat field, uh, maybe you've seen one around here. There's... Uh, what happens is in a wheat field, some of the wheat gets ready before the whole field is ready to be harvested, right? Like some of it ripens early. Well, they, they would have called that the first fruits, and that would have been something that um, would have been able to, they, they would have like taken that, they go and take that first fruit stuff. They actually bring that to the temple as a sacrifice. Like that's part of their offering to the temple. That food is actually then distributed to the poor, but that, that's a sacrifice. Like, that's an offering to the Lord. What happens is the, the 144,000 is described as a first fruits offering. What does that mean? It means that the harvest is coming. And so we need to start anticipation. Like, the first fruits have been harvested the rest of the harvest is coming, and we need to be prepared. Like, you need to feel that in everything else that's said here so that we can understand the tenure of what's happening because we're going to start talking about some really hard words. Now, I want to throw up for you uh, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. This is the next two verses in the chapter, and we'll read it. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, to which we go, yeah, it's interesting, eternal gospel, blah, blah, blah. You know what? The first readers of this passage would have gone, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> like, gospel? Because the word gospel is not a religious term. First, we kind of kidnapped the word and made it religious but the word in its originality is not necessarily a religious term. It's an emperor term. It's when, when the emperors had their advent. Last week we talked about advent, their, their arrival. The emperor has their arrival. What they would do is they would send heralds out with a message. That message is called in the, in the Greek the euangelion. That word is translated gospel, which means good news. The emperor, which, by the way, we should remind ourselves of that every chance we get, that the gospel's good news. 
Because I think the way some people share the gospel, I would say if that's your good news, I would hate to see your bad news. But that's, if you begin, if you begin your good news with, hey, did you know you're an abomination? Um, probably not the best tactic. The gospel, the good news is emperor language. And so for this angel to come with a new gospel, like this is a direct in-your-face Rome approach to how we understand what's happening in Rome. This is an eternal gospel. Now, Augustus had a gospel. Caesar Augustus had a gospel. His gospel said things like this. The Prince of Peace has come. The Son of God has come, and he will provide remission of sins. Like, that's Augustus's gospel. Anybody have a slight issue with that? Like, these are foundational Christian premises. What we have to understand is the gospel, the good news of what's actually going on in this world is the conversation. Who brings peace? Like Augustus says, I do by the power of my right hand. Jesus says, I do by lifting up those that are around me. Now, which one actually works? Just a thought, there is no society dedicated to the remembrance of Augustus. Just a thought. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Now, listen to this. Who gets to be a part of this gospel, this good news from heaven? Every nation and tribe and language and people. Everybody. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Right? Like, judgment. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and springs of water. Now, Let's talk about this judgment. Because we treat judgment like this. I am kind of like a boxer up against the ropes, and the world is beating me up, and I just got to sit and take it. But wait till your father gets home. You are going to get your comeuppance. This is how we treat judgment. This is what we see. Like judgment isn't about about the people that are faithful. Judgment, judgment is about Rome getting it. Judgment's coming, Rome, and you, ooh, you are going to pay. By the way, I think that the church has built itself on some pretty emotionally unhealthy practices this happens to be one of them. Like, think, in what world is that a good perspective? Try it in your marriage. Oh, you blew it? I'm going to make you pay. See how that goes for you. Like, in what world does that work? I think we need to have a better understanding of judgment. And 
you know, we got this 10-year anniversary coming up, and we're, you know, I've been reflecting on the last 10 years. And so I went back and looked at the last, at the first five sermons that I ever preached in this church. First of all, for those of you that were here, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, my preaching is evidence that there is a God because without him, there is nothing good that lives in it. Uh, nothing. Like I was like, wow, this is terrible. But what I would say is, I was like, I wouldn't come to my church. <laughs> that's, that's a problem. That's problematic um, when you wouldn't come to your own church. What I would say is what we had hoped and, and the, the dreams that we were dreaming, and we had no idea what God was going to do with the last 10 years. We had no idea. But with the dreams that we were dreaming were dreams about a community of people that could genuinely rally around one another and pull for the best in each other. That it was, you, <laughs> you can clap for that, Tasha. You're all right. <laughs> Me and Tasha have a conversation every week. I don't know if you guys know that. We call it preaching, but we're actually talking. We had hoped that this would be a place, a group of people, where we could pull for one another and not at one another. That we wouldn't be a group of people that were so caught up in being right that we forgot what it was like to be godly. And what the church has become in the world the church has become a group of people that are truth flag wavers and right fighters. And the problem with that isn't that our truth is right or wrong. The problem with it is that eventually, when that's the way you build your world, eventually people put their hand in your face and say, I don't care what you have to say anymore. You're mean. There's got to be a better way to do this. And I think it begins with a proper understanding of judgment. So I want to look at verses 14 to 16, and I want us to see what happens after these angels come and they begin to speak. Let's look at this. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the white cloud, one like the Son of Man. Who's that? It's Jesus. This is a direct pull out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 10 to 13, which is so important because in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days comes and he sits on his throne with his books of judgment. And the one like the Son of Man shows up and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to one who's like the Son of Man, and he took the books. So when the Son of Man comes... What is he carrying? Books. Books of judgment. He's this, it's, now it raises all kinds of questions. Like, does he ride a horse? Does he ride a cloud? Which is it? I gotta know. And if you answer this wrong, preacher, I don't have to listen to you. Like, the, it's one of those things where we may lose the forest for the trees there. The point is, I don't care if he's riding a cloud or a horse. He's coming. We better be ready. Right? Let's, let's stay on target. And we know he's coming with the books, book of life, the book of death. Seated on a cloud, one like a son of man with a gold. By the way, I forgot this part. Matthew chapter 28, it's one of the passages that we quote all the time. Go into all the world and make disciples. 
right? You know what Jesus says right before that? You know why you should go make disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who's that? It's the Son of Man out of Daniel chapter 7. He's claiming the Son of Man passage for himself, which, by the way, has been the title he's given to himself all through his ministry. All, I'm the Son of Man, so you should probably go make disciples. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This isn't puffy. This is sickle time. (laughs) And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, think about this. Any time that Jesus talks about the harvest and reaping, who's he talking about? He's talking about believers. So who's judgment for? It's for us. Judgment is not Rome. You're going to get yours. Judgment is about something altogether different. Judgment is about us and our faithfulness. Why? Because we're the harvest of the first fruits that the 144,000 were. So if we don't get that, we sit around and don't live like Christians and blame the world for it. You wait, Rome. You wait. You're going to get it. That's not what judgment's for. Judgment is not to make someone else pay. I mean, we know it's not emotionally healthy to think this way, and God, the most emotionally healthy person in the universe, is like, but I'm going to do it. That makes no sense. It doesn't work in any way of thinking. And the reason why this matters is because Christians spend so much time right fighting that we miss our obligation to be faithful to the task. The calling that you and I have is not about our being right all the time. Think about it this way. How is there anyone in this room that would be arrogant enough? Now the answer is no. Uh, uh, that would be arrogant enough to assume that you know everything that there is to know about God. Like, it is entirely possible. Like, if you know everything about God, your God's too small. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the problems that Orthodox Jews have with Christians because we talk about God from a resolved place, not from a relational learning, unfolding, and growing place. And the Jews are like, man, your God is really small that you know him so completely. None of us, but what if this place where you're right fighting and truth flag waving, what if you're wrong? Like I'm not saying don't have an opinion. Have an opinion. Have the discussion. Disagree with me. You are free to disagree with me. I'm not right about everything. Most things... 
I had a conversation between services with somebody who was like, well, what about the demons in this? And then I was like, that's Dante's Inferno. That's not even the Bible. Because there's all this revelation stuff attached to it. It wasn't even biblical. So I, again, I used my pet passage like, show me the passage, right? But I, he was like, I just don't know if I can agree with you. And I was like, you don't have to. You don't have to agree with me. Just have a well-reasoned biblical response why you believe what you do. I'm okay if we don't agree on that. Because as long as we're both working towards figuring out what the Word says, we'll get there. And I'm pulling for you to study, and you're pulling for me to study, not to be wrong. Like, it's a totally different posture in how we engage relationship with one another, and especially in the conversation about God. It matters how we do that. And I think that the church has got to stop trying to be right and start being a better version of Jesus in the community. Somewhere along the way, we believed that our information was what people need to know. Listen, your theology doesn't save anybody. Jesus does. Doesn't mean theology is not important. I mean, the answer to bad theology isn't no theology, right? The answer to bad theology is good theology. So we need to work at that, but we need to work at it humbly and open-handed because at the end of the day, what our goal is, is that you and I find a better version of Jesus living in each of us, not that we're right. Because you can't be completely right about God. He's too big. So chill out. Love Jesus and love people well. Even Jesus said, they'll know we are Christians by our convincing apologetic arguments. <laughs> what? Why is the church so concerned about that and we're so bad at loving one another well? Like, can we all just be honest and say that the church really sucks at this and we're trying... But it ain't working real well because we care more about being right than we do about being godly. And what we have to understand is that judgment, even judgment, now I'm not talking about there is no hell. That is not what I'm saying. But even judgment from God's perspective is about measuring our faithfulness. That's what judgment happens for. And the question that I have is, how are we doing? In Hebrews 11, they call it the Hall of Faith. It, it's uh, this chapter in Hebrews where there's all these stories about people who by faith they did this, and by faith, by faith Abraham did this, and it was awesome. And by faith Isaac did this thing, and it rocked. And by faith Jacob did this, and he was really cool. And by faith Samson did this, and it was really... And I'm like, Samson? Really, of all the people to put in the Hall of Faith, Samson, that guy's whacked. Samson gives me hope, right? Like if Samson can be in the Hall of Faith, maybe there's a place for an idiot like me um, in that. That's the first half of the chapter. It's like, by faith, awesome. It's like a Batman episode. By faith, shazam. By faith, kapow. It's like, by faith, woo. Then there's the second half of chapter 11. And then there was these other people who were sawed in two. That, that rocks. And had their heads removed and their families taken from them. They were thrown in prison. 
and did not, were not delivered back to their families, and the world was not worthy of them. The same faith. And what we often want to measure is, are we living our faith right based on how we feel like God's blessing us, which ultimately is more about Rome's blessing than it is about God's blessing. And I would just invite us to consider the possibility that for some of us, for some of us, what if the second half of Hebrews 11 is our testimony? Is God less faithful, or are we called to be less faithful to him? And we have, we have to hang in there. We can't quit. Here's why. Look at the, the last two verses of Hebrews 11. Check it out. All these, though, uh, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you know why you have to hang in there? Because your life is the fulfillment of what they died for. Like you're honoring the legacy of the people that you're a part of. Christians, Jesus followers, are a proud history of laying our lives down regardless of the cost, and I'm afraid that American Christianity may have lost that touch. We want to have our cake and eat it too. It doesn't work. You know, we stand on the shoulders of their faith What will it look like for your children to stand on yours? We're going to move towards the Lord's table. And um, so if you're new with us, we have an open table every week if you're willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us. There's a place at the table for you. But we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we will take them all together. While they're passing that out, I want to work through some implications. And implications means these are some things that as uh, we worked through this sermon this week, these are things that the Lord put on our heart that were particularly important. Um, I hope these are important to you as well. There's probably lots of other places where you would go, but I would take it here. You're free to do that. These are just things that we thought were maybe particularly important. First implication, Galatians 6, 7 says this, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Here's what I hope you understand. I know that it feels like we're losing in our culture. I know that it feels like we're losing influence, that it feels like uh, people are more and more hostile to Christianity. I know that. Hang in there. God's not mocked. You'll reap what you sow. Keep sowing to faithfulness. Next implication. Our faith stands on the shoulders of faithful men and women. Will your children's faith stand taller than ours? 
This is a hard question for us because every, the hope for every parent is that we leave things better for our kids than what we had, right? Like my parents um, grew up in pretty dysfunctional homes. Both of them did. And then they found each other. Let me tell you about two dysfunctional people meeting. Um, two negatives don't equal a positive in that regard, right? When, when this person's dysfunctional and this person's dysfunctional, it exponentially increases the dysfunction. Doesn't decrease it. So the best gift that you can give to your children is a healthy you. Like there's no lesson that you can teach that's more valuable to your kids than a healthy you. You teach them all the truth you want. If they can't climb up in your lap and be received, well, it doesn't matter. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it matters. Healthy you matters. My parents were not perfect parents, but they worked really, really hard at providing a better home than what they had. And because of that, I am able to stand on the shoulders of my parents and see further than they ever could. Like, my dad would have never dreamed of a church as big as ours. He never would have dreamed of it. It was way beyond his ability. My dad was a pastor in a church of 300. He thought he'd died and gone to heaven. He was like, look at my fertile field. Look at, the, look at how big this church, this, look. Oh, my goodness. I never, he never dreamed. 300 was huge for him, right? Like, we have more than 300 in this room, and this is just one of five services. And that doesn't include the kids' ministry. He never would have dreamed of it. But because of their faithfulness, I'm able to stand on their shoulders and see further. Now the question is, what kind of legacy am I leaving for my own children? Like we stand on the faith of faithful men and women who worked, they they didn't have everything figured out, but they were faithful to their calling. What will our legacy be? Last implication. Faithfulness focuses on faithfulness, not fairness. Let me hear, let me say this to you. Hear me. Hear my heart, but hear my words. You should never say as a Christian, but that's not fair. Because as a Christian... You don't want fair. Is there anybody in here that's like, but we want, the world just needs to be fair. Really? You want God to be fair with you? You understand what I'm saying? God's not fair. And we're all kind of dependent on that. Grace, by its very nature, isn't fair. I'm just going to be honest with you. Fair is a four-letter F word. (laughs) Right? It is. And we get suckered into believing that fair is our objective. And I just want... It's not. Fair is not our objective. And it's not fair that they get this and we don't. It's not fair that we get treated this way. It's not fair that the Christians don't get to have their clubs. It's not fair that the blah, the blah, blah, blah. It's not fair. It's not fair. You don't want fair. And by the way, fair isn't really what you want anyway. You just don't want to be slighted. 
Because think about this. If, if we were working the same job and I got paid 10 bucks and you got paid 20 bucks for the same work, I would go, that's not fair. But if the roles were reversed and I got 20 bucks and you got 10 bucks, I'd be like, man, I don't know, but like, you know, hashtag blessed. I mean, you know, <laughs> me, I'm God's favorite, I guess. I mean, he loves, God loves his children. I don't know what, I don't know what that says about you, but 20. You 10, me 20. Like, that's how, we don't want fair. We just don't want to be slighted. That's the truth. And I would suggest that it doesn't matter two hoots whether you get slighted or not. You be faithful. Because faithfulness focuses on faithfulness, not fairness. It is not fair that Jesus laid his life down for you and I. But... He did. And that's what we celebrate each week in communion. It's a reminder to us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And Lord, I just want to say, first of all, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the call to faithfulness and for the reality that when we fix our eyes on you, the vision changes. Lord, help us to be faithful. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, Visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.